Hi everyone, this is Sydney Manson from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Dennis Turner from Duke University. He recently joined us for a webinar focused on dementia syndrome, the metabolic changes that occur from this disease, and the importance of proper physiological monitoring of animal models during studies. Let's jump in. You mentioned that isoflurane is neuroprotective. Could you elaborate on this, please? You know, examples, um, mechanism, et cetera. So isoflurane has been, there's shown to be neuroprotective in stroke models. And there's probably at least 12 articles on this in the last 15 years. And it's neuroprotective through, it enhances blood flow to the brain directly. We see that both in patients as well as in animal models. And so in addition to enhanced blood flow, it tends to help put neurons slightly asleep, which may reduce their ability, for example, to have like spreading depression. And so there's multiple levels at both the blood vessel and the neuron level. And this is one reason why inhalation anesthesia is neuroprotective in patients as well, and one of the most common types of anesthesia used. Fantastic. Great response. Thank you. Our next one does hyperglycemia in type 1 diabetes patients lead to dementia? It's a very good question. When hyperglycemia is studied in slice models, for example, it's very neuroprotective. So the question is, is it the hyperglycemia per se that's in the blood, or is it the lack of insulin and other factors associated with the hyperglycemia that really may be um, loss of neuroprotection? In patients, hyperglycemia is a very bad prognostic factor for stroke, but it's unclear if it's the actual glucose itself or if it's other factors associated with diabetes. Okay, good response. Thank you. Gail asked uh, another question about the isoflurane. Do you use oxygen or room air? Can you also elaborate on to why you use whichever option? So we use typically 30% oxygen, but room air is also fine with spontaneous breathing. And we measure the PO2, PCO2 in the system, in the blood, to be able to calibrate those. But either 21 to 30% is fine to avoid hyperoxia. Fantastic. Okay. Our next question, can we reversibly reduce the neuron's energy demand in a short period to treat the metabolic insufficiency? It's a great question. That's done for stroke, for example. You can reduce demand through anesthesia. For example, even isoflurane is a stroke treatment in the acute ICU or other drugs such as ketamine, for example. Unfortunately, in an awake person, it's very difficult to reduce the demand because you won't be able to think then. So all of the drugs that reduce demand also tend to be sedating or anesthesia type drugs. That makes sense. All right. This question here. Can regular exercise, if started early in life, alleviate the occurrence of dementia? That's an interesting um, question. It's a, very, it's a very good question. We have now three articles from the last four years on what determines longevity in humans. And these are database studies. And the one simple answer that's come out of all the studies is walking speed. So the faster you walk at any age, the longer you tend to live. It's the best predictive factor. Um, these are published in JAMA, all four of the articles. Excellent database studies. So obviously, if you 
can walk fast, that means you don't have systemic disease like lung disease. You have the interest in walking, so you don't have dementia. And you also have like good cardiac function as well as body function overall. So it's really the best measure of overall fitness. And clearly, if you're going to walk fast at a later age, you have to walk fast at a young age. So my guess is, is that exercise is very important. This is obviously emphasized by most longevity, and I think it enhances longevity. Yes. Wow. Really interesting. I didn't know that. (laughs) Okay. Our next question is from Alice. Does caloric restriction improve the ability of aged animals to switch from glycolysis to oxidative metabolism? That's a great question. I honestly don't know. I'd have to go back and look at the Matson article. And that's one of the large area studies that have not been well published in terms of the caloric restriction model is to do slices on it or do seahorse analysis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next question here. Your AD mouse model has APP mutation, but not tau protein mutation. You also observe tau tangles in your model. Do you know when the tau tangles start to appear in your model? There's Dr. Colton has several articles on that, and they really start to appear about 20, 24 weeks. And it's, um, she views it not necessarily as tangles, but as non-phosphorylated or insoluble tau, which is what's e- more easily measured. And so it, you don't need the tau mutation to be able to get it in this kind of model with the reduced nitric oxide levels. Great. Thank you. Okay. Let's jump to this question here. Can you discuss how limitations in oxygen supply and mitochondrial function could impact the ability to utilize alternate fuel sources like ketones and lactate? With ketones, there's still a need for oxidative phosphorylation. It's very hard, unless you have clear hypoxia from a pulmonary source, to really significantly reduce oxygen to the point that mitochondria um, don't have enough. And you can estimate that with NADH imaging, what is the critically low level of oxygen? And it's probably only one or 2%. So room air for us almost always provides sufficient oxygen unless there's some other really large systemic problem. So it's very unusual to see true hypoxia effect. It's really other factors like regulation within the mitochondria that affect oxidative phosphorylation rather than the oxygen level. That was a good response. All right, we have a question from Joyce. Can exogenous ketone work as brain energy substrate in the absence of fasting in dementia? Well, you need to switch out glucose. There is a ketogenic diet for epilepsy, which does that over a period of time where you have progressively less glucose in your diet and you force the body to become more ketogenic, but intermittent fasting does it better than ketogenic diet. So there's several approaches to that, but you have to reduce your glucose simultaneously with increased ketones. Okay, that makes sense. John asks, are there, and what is the distribution of GLUT2 receptors? Could this be related to the neuroprotective effect of high glucose levels in vitro? So in vitro, in brain slices, we don't really worry about blood-brain barrier glucose transport through GLUT1. And GLUT2 is more on neurons, and that seems to be present sufficient. So neurons, even aging neurons or from our CBN model, seem to take up glucose very well in in vitro slices. So it's more a blood-brain barrier limitation that we would not see in vitro. In vitro, vitro, yeah. Right. Okay. Awesome. 
Wenyu says, what is the difference between caloric restriction and intermittent fasting? Which one is better for delayed aging or dementia? And if we compare to the keto diet? I view them all the same. It just, if you measure the level of glucose and the level of ketone bodies, acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood, then they all reach the same point. It's just a question of how long one is fasting. So the schedule that Dr. Madsen gives for human caloric restriction is different. So for example, in lower animals, it's really just every other day food. So you fast for 24 hours, then you have some food for 24 hours. So it could be as simple as that. But it's really how much does each alternative approach change the ketone levels and reduce glucose. So that, that would need to be compared depending on the specific diet, you know, like in a rat model, for example. Right. Okay. Raquel asks, how does sleeping influence aging and dementia? How does not adjusting to the circadian rhythms influence this? So there's a number of very interesting articles from the last five years from Mako Nadergaard on sleeping as being very important for clearing the brain of toxic substances through the lymphatic pathways and into spinal fluid. And so when neurons are less active, then the extracellular space shrinks. And so the body is able to clear the brain much better. And so lack of clearance may enhance toxicity. And that's typically done during sleeping or during times of inactivity of the brain. And so sleep is probably very important for clearance and also just reduced neuronal demand. So they have a kind of a time to catch up as well as things like dreams and many other features associated with sleep. Interesting. <laughs> I like that saying, even just for day to day, that sleep clears the, I think it does more than just the toxins and stuff. Obviously it resets you and your body and everything. So sleep is very important. <laughs> Daniel's question says, do changes in the rates of metabolic heat production in the brain parallel the other metabolic changes observed in aging? That's a great question. So metabolic heat production is related to how much ATP hydrolysis is ongoing. So it just says the total amount of metabolism and heat. So heat's directly related. We actually do. I have a, a thermal camera to study that heat release. The problem is, is that the enhanced cerebral blood flow takes away the heat from the brain. And so some people think of the hyperemia associated with metabolic demand as also a radiator for the brain. In other words, to take away the heat so that in vivo, you actually do not see much in the way of heat elevation because of the close goal and the fact that the blood flow dissipates the heat. But heat is a direct measure of the total mitochondrial ongoing metabolism, yes. Okay, awesome. All right. Our next question asks, is there a predominance of mitochondrial factors over vascular factors to explain metabolic insufficiency? Well, I think everything kind of adds up. In other words, systemic problems, which, you know, too much blood pressure, too low blood pressure, bad blood vessels in the brain associated with aging from a variety of sources like diabetes, hypertension, either at the large blood vessel or small blood vessel level, and then the reactivity of the blood vessels and then if the brain needs more glucose already because of aging, then every one of those compromises. So it's kind of a serial factor of which every single one influences, you know, the endpoint, which is how much substrate actually gets into the brain. Now, interestingly, the ketone transport, which is through monocarboxylate transmitters, does not change with aging, unlike the, glutam I mean, the glucose 
So that's why ketones may work better in Alzheimer's or in stroke is because those transporters are not changed as much as the glucose transporters. Very good. Let's get to this next one. Just curious, which is better source of fuel for long-term brain health? Would you say it's glucose or fat or maybe a combination? That's where the ketogenic diet and the intermittent fasting come in. So to be able to liberate energy from fat, then you need a period of fasting to be able to do that. And uh, we disagree a little bit on how long, but at least 12 to 16 hours of fasting before you release any metabolic substrate. Now, when fat stores start to dissolve to release that substrate, it's always in the form of ketones. Fat stores do not regenerate glucose per se. And so, um, so when we say fat release, we mean ketones in, right? And that's associated with fasting, basically. And so at the time of fasting, your blood glucose goes down, your ketones go up because you're being released from fat and from fat stores, and the brain tends to do very well on ketones. Again, with fasting for several days, you're just working on ketones. And a lot of people who have done that, for example, Gandhi, you know, made it very clear that he felt his mental clarity was significantly enhanced after several days of fasting. So in some cultures, it's a tradition to do fasting, to basically to enhance their thinking. Wow, very interesting. Okay. <laughs> All right. George said that you mentioned insulin in passing. Are there insulin receptors on neurons or astrocytes that regulate metabolism, or is the metabolic activity independent of insulin? Nasal insulin is being tested for cognitive function. That's a very good point. So insulin in neurons within the CNS does not mediate metabolism per se. So all of the transporters are separate from insulin. But insulin does stimulate IGF-1 receptors and acts as a growth factor for neurons. To me, it's very unclear where nasal insulin actually goes in the brain because the distribution studies have not been really well done so far. But the idea is insulin may enhance this IGF factor on brain cells, on neurons, to work as a growth factor, which may enhance cell growth in other ways, much like BDNF, for example, as a growth factor. So there's still a lot of study ongoing with how insulin affects neurons and astrocytes in the brain, but it certainly may be a very positive factor separate from metabolism. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers, just like you, answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.